0: Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by the Arizona Office of Tourism. This spring, follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. Amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, incredible food. Arizona is the perfect home base for baseball fans. Plan your spring training getaway at Visitarizona.comslash springtraining. Yes, that's Visitarizona.comslash Spring Training. And now, here's our show. Oh,
1: somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere. And somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing. And somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Gotham. The National League's moved out. But in San Francisco, the band is playing, and the flags are flying. The big city is big league for the first time, and a gala parade down Market Street bids the San Francisco Giants welcome as they open the season in their new home. An extra burst of cheers greets Willie Mays, riding here with Hank Sauer. The Say Hey Kid is at home already. <laughs> A parade that marks the making of baseball history. San Francisco Giants meet Los Angeles Dodgers, the West Coast's first big league baseball game ever, but incidentally a continuation of an old, old diamond rivalry. Old familiar faces, managers Walt Austin and Bill Rigney. And Mrs. John J. McGraw, widow of the greatest giant of them all, who lends her prestige to the new environment. The ball game, historic and terrific. Harold Spencer, homers with the Giants already ahead by two runs. San Francisco has something to cheer about. Final score, Giants 8, Dodgers 0.
2: Welcome to Good Seats
0: Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, buckle up. Here we go, friends. It's a good seat still available. Thanks for coming by. My name is Tim Hanlon. And of course, you know that this is the curious little podcast uh, that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Uh, Appreciate you finding us and uh, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds and otherwise ingesting uh, our content this week. And uh, as we try to do each and every week uh, for now, one hundred and forty seven of these little silly episodes, uh, we try to kind of go back into time. And uh, delve into teams or leagues or or things in and around those uh, areas that uh, are no longer with us for whatever reasons, including, of course, teams that have been previously domiciled. Uh, They don't need to be defunct to be uh, on our radar. And this week we're uh, going back into baseball. And as you heard there, uh, the interesting year that was 1957 and 1958 In many respects, uh, a a gigantic uh, tear into the fabric of the New York metropolitan area, as well as baseball generally and frankly, a signal of bigger things beyond just baseball. And that is uh, the dramatic uh, move of both the Brooklyn Dodgers and the then New York baseball giants to the West Coast simultaneously in the uh, offseason of 1957 into 1958. Uh, that little uh, newsreel clip that you heard there shows uh, a bit of sort of what was going on in San Francisco as the uh, the New York version of the Giants became that of the San Francisco Giants, and and uh, we get into the story of both of these teams and their dramatic uh, exit from Gotham and their arrival into the sunny lands of of the state of California. Uh, with our guest this week, Lincoln Mitchell, uh, as we get into the story of baseball. Going West, and that's the name of the book, by the way, Baseball Goes West, the Dodgers, the Giants, and the shaping of the major leagues. And as we'll get into our conversation with Lincoln in just a few moments, uh, a lot of the narrative that uh, I guess we've all grown up with uh, has been historically rooted, in, and and understandably so, uh, in that of the story of the leaving of these two teams uh, from New York to the West Coast, from that of the, you know, largely New York-centered Viewpoint, that uh, being, uh, you know, sort of literally the uh, the tearaway of these two, uh, supposedly uh, and arguably uh, beloved franchises, and uh, them absconding into the uh, into the wilderness uh, of the West Coast, and then the miserly—well, uh, the miserly, but the uh, you know the the, the profit-seeking uh, Walter O'Malley, and and in Brooklyn, and the dem bums, and and how could you, and and the Giants coming along for the ride, and. Uh, Horace Stoneham uh, seeing San Francisco as a as a as a natural parallel to go at the same time. And, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, having grown up in the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area and and having, uh, you know, uh, relatives and, and and their relatives, at, you know, that 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 story is still uh, quite strong. And, um, uh, you know, and then many have not forgotten. And it's understandable because it's this was a team that or two teams, frankly, that were, you know, part of the fabric, literally and figuratively of New York. And all of a sudden you have two thirds of uh, Major League Baseball uh, up and walking away and go, going elsewhere. But as we get into our conversation with Lincoln Mitchell in just a moment, there is absolutely another sort of point of view of this. And as and, uh, large, the thematics of uh, of his book, And it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. It's, it's, it's well written, well researched, and, and it makes a strong case sort of for the West Coast point of view. A- and it's not necessarily say that New Yorkers are wrong in their sort of viewpoint, but it does sort of frame. Uh, the move uh, from uh, the recipients uh, kind of points of view, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, the state of California, uh, and all that uh, sort of comes along with that or came along with that uh, expansion, uh, the economic development and growth of the United States, the ideas of expanding uh, professional sports outside, not just baseball, but also, you know, outside that of uh, the the uh, East Coast and, and the Midwest, largely uh, the 1950s. Uh, the 1960s, uh, economic times, the sort of stretch and the uh, maturation, I guess, of the country and the, the diaspora of people uh, moving westward and southward. And there's a whole bunch of other things much more sophisticated than I can even uh, encapsulate in this little brief intro here. But uh, it's a fascinating story. You think you kind of know it all about sort of the story of the Dodgers and the Giants going to the West Coast. I don't think you have. And that's why it's uh, I think uh, a a fun little listen as we uh, get into the conversation about baseball going west uh, with our guest, Lincoln Mitchell, coming up in mere moments. uh, Once again, I think you're going to enjoy it. I learned a whole bunch uh, and it was uh, fun to do so at the same time. So that's probably the best of both worlds, right? Learning while enjoying yourself. That's, uh, you know, you can't beat that with a stick. And uh, uh, by all means, please don't. Uh, But uh, we'll get to that chat in just a second. Uh, We want to say thank you, of course, to one of our many uh, beloved sponsors. And uh, we try to keep them thematically uh, connected as we go into our little explorations each and every week. And uh, this week, hopefully, is no exception, as we uh, remind you to visit early and visit often and make a purchase or two, why don't you, at OldSchoolShirts.com. OldSchoolShirts.com, the name uh, basically says it all. And uh, baseball is uh, very well represented at oldschoolshirts.com, uh, especially when it comes to uh, this week's episode. You got a couple of uh, Brooklyn Dodgers shirts there, some some really cool ones like the We Dem Bums uh, shirt. There are a couple of other uh, sort of uh, takes on the old Dodger stuff, and even, for example, a, a shirt devoted to the San Francisco Seals of the uh, of the Triple A, which many San Franciscans may remember of a certain age or maybe, frankly, of of a current age, don't remember the fact that prior to the Giants uh, moving from uh, New York uh, to San Francisco, there was uh, this San Francisco Seals AAA team and uh, the Pacific Coast League of the AAA and the San Francisco Seals in particular were arguably and and maybe not so arguably major league quality on, on any given day. Uh, and you know we get in a little bit of that in our previous episodes devoted to the Seattle pilots and, and a little bit of uh, of some of our, our our other conversations generally about major League Baseball going westward. that you got to keep in mind that the Pacific Coast League triple uh, uh, a was a very vibrant, a very solid of uh, the Hollywood stars down in in uh, in Southern California. Uh, for example, uh, the um, Wrigley Field, the uh, Los Angeles version of such. I, you know, the the Triple A Pacific Coast League was uh, a, a a very strong, almost major league quality uh, style of baseball prior to uh, these two seminal teams moving to the West Coast. And and how ha- how better to sort of remember all that or show your friends that you kind of know it without having to educate them? Just show up at the bar, or the restaurant, or at the Starbucks or whatever with your San Francisco Seal shirt. One of the just hundreds of different uh, cool shirts uh, in and around sports and pop culture and, and all kinds of fun stuff at OldSchoolShirts.com. You will get lost in all of it. Uh, you will find at least a handful of shirts that you will want for your own collection. And of course, by uh, by making a purchase there, make sure that you use the promo code that we love to give to you early and often. And uh, of course, that's Good Seats. Good Seats, that's the promo code at OldSchoolShirts.com. 10% off all of your purchases. It melts away right there in the uh, shopping cart. Uh, Please use it and uh, please enjoy uh, the fine stylings of OldSchoolShirts.com. Again, promo code Good Seats for 10% off. Whether it's Brooklyn Dodgers or San Francisco Seals or or whatever else they got in the catalog, go for it. And uh, we appreciate our friend uh, P.F. Wilson and his uh, gang of merry women and men. Uh, I think they're merry. I'm sure they're enjoying themselves. I'm sh- sure that they, they like what they do and, and where they work. And Cincinnati can be a fun place at times, you know. So check them out and uh, make a purchase or two. Support the show while you're doing it. Why don't you? Thanks a lot to OldSchoolShirts.com. And thanks a lot to you to listen, to continue to listen to our uh, very fun and interesting and very informative conversation with the very knowledgeable Lincoln Mitchell. Let's get into it. Baseball moves west. And here's our chat that we had just uh, a couple of weeks back. Enjoy. Let's just start perhaps with uh, maybe sort of the odd, uh, maybe not so obvious. I wouldn't call it odd, maybe, but not so obvious path to which you've gotten to becoming a uh, an author of substance around baseball generally uh, and the topic that we're going to delve into, because this is not your quote-unquote proverbial day job now, is it?
2: No, it's not my day job. But my passion for baseball predates, doesn't it predate my interest in politics, because I grew up in a family where we politics was very much always front and center, but certainly my interest in the academic discipline of political science or my work studying the former Soviet Union and, and you know, American foreign policy. So, it's kind of going back to my to my intellectual roots in that learning about baseball as a young person is particularly in the 70s you know when i was growing up was a literary thing you had to read books and it was a, a quantitative thing you had to understand data and that you know much of my early career working with you know public opinion data writing you know as as an academic and also working political campaigns it was the same skill set If you can look at a, you know, now we would say baseball reference, but in the old days, a baseball encyclopedia. If you can look at a page of the baseball encyclopedia and look at a, you know, two rows of numbers and understand the story that it's telling, you can do the kind of data analysis side of running a political campaign or of writing an academic political science paper. So there's a little more overlap, at least in my head, than it might initially seem.
0: Well, but uh, obviously baseball, perhaps the richest of American sports when it comes to statistics and whatnot. So were you as a kid young adult, whatever, were you pouring over sort of the, the Bill James abstracts?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I read the first, the first, you know, one that was actually bound rather than, and you could buy anywhere. I bought in the, you know, before the, in the run-up to the 1982 baseball season when I was, that would have been in ninth grade. And I was definitely that annoying kid in high school who would say things to people like, you know, on base percentage is more important than batting average. And I remember after the Giants in 1983, they had a, a guy named Daryl Evans who had moved from third base to first base. And Evans... Probably as much as anybody, you know, in the serious kind of sabermetric world, his career has been revisited. Because everyone thought he was a pretty good player. And the consensus now is that this guy was a borderline Hall of Famer, but because he hit for low average, no one recognizes this. And I remember, actually remember, and the Giants, Darryl Evans had signed with Detroit as a free agent. And to make up for it, the Giants had traded for it, was basically a washed up Al Oliver. And I remember calling in the local sports talk show and trying to explain to them that moving from Evans to Oliver at first base would hurt the team because we'd lose the power, we he actually got on base more than Al Oliver, despite Oliver despite Oliver's, despite Oliver's better batting average, and the host really thought I was nuts. Um but I was right, but he thought I was nuts. And so I was definitely very early converted to that and and still, you know, now it's there's you know, there's all kinds of data that I don't really have access to because or don't have the the strong enough background in, but I still believe in that as a methodology. And I also frankly love, you know, reading the uh the literary side and the kind of more Human uh, kind of humanity side of baseball, if you will. You know, I grew up. Whenever Roger Angel would write an article in the New Yorker, we didn't have a subscription. My grandfather did in New York, and he would, you know, put a, a, a label around it. You know, write, you know, go to page fifty-two or whatever, and send it to me in the mail in San Francisco. So I, I grew up in both the literary and the quantitative side of baseball, being very close to my heart.
0: So what? Is, uh, so what is it about this sport in particular? I think I know the answer, but I, I guess I'd like to hear it through your eyes. I think we're probably around the same age. Why? What is the romanticism and or intrigue about baseball, say, relative to other sports or just other things out there in the world that one could be interested in? What is it about baseball that that sort of piques the interest and the fancy? Uh, Maybe not so much modern day, uh, sadly, but, you know.
2: And I often wonder if I would, without sounding like a grouchy old man, would I fall in love with baseball today the way I did then? And, you know, I have two sons who are now young adults, 18 and 20. And and they played baseball, but they never growing up, and they were actually quite good. And but they never got interested in the fan side of it the way that I did. And part of it is because the game is presented differently. Part of it is because it's played differently. But a big part of it is because there's so many other things to do. There just weren't as many things in the 1970s. You know that you couldn't watch any movie you wanted on on your at your home any time. You couldn't. You, you you couldn't understand what was going on in other countries. you didn't have access to the whole world of culture. You really just had access if you were kind of a, a non immigrant American kid to what was going on in America. so there were fewer things and for me, baseball what what I think what appealed to me about baseball was that it was more accessible than other sports it was you could I make mean, Candlestick park by you know you could go any day with a few exceptions and get tickets for basically nothing at the last minute, if you didn't mind a long bus ride. So on that level, it was more accessible. And then it was an entree into understanding American culture and history. And growing up, you know, with a single mom, and it was an entree into, it was a, early on in my life, it was a way for me to talk to adult men um, in a in, in a way that, that was, for me, not intimidating, because I knew that no matter how old they were, I knew as much about baseball as they did. If you know, if you're at a ball game, or it was a conversation, It was it was kind of helped me I think uh, understand the world and adjust to the world around me, um, and and you know the Giants had some bad teams. So if you can fall in love with the Giants in 1976 and 77, you can fall in love with any bit with baseball anywhere because you're you're an addict. You know, by '78 they were good, but there were some pretty rough teams in there.
0: Well, okay, so so this also feels like I'm scratching onto more of the impetus here, right? So, yeah. enlighten our audience because uh, you're obviously sort of referencing some West Coastness, and I'm guessing you grew up in and around that area or the Giants. Sort of on your radar because of their move, right? So maybe that's sort of part of the story about why
2: it, it is part of key. part of the story. Because what the Giants and I have in common is that we both moved from New York to San Francisco, and we both moved from Manhattan to San Francisco. So I was raised, I grew up, in, I was born in New York City. Um, my mother was a Giants fan. I mean, she was a Yankees fan. Pardon me. She's now a Giants fan because she's lived in San Francisco since 1971. We moved out there in 71, and. I grew up there until, you know, through the end of college. I went to the University of California, so I was, uh, you know, at at Santa Cruz. So I was around, you know, just Northern California, basically my whole upbringing, but still had family in New York. So very much grew up raised by New Yorkers. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather, whom I was very close, had been a Yankees fan, uh, briefly a Dodgers fan in the Jackie Robinson era because of his political uh, affiliations and views, Um, And then when the Dodgers left, went back to being a Yankees fan. The Yankees, of course, were very good in the late 1970s, as I'm sure you know. Oh, sure. So so I was, you know, I can tell the story of being a long-suffering Giants fan, but I was also... You know, the only Yankees fan in my school other than my older brother. And, and you know, it came, we came by it honestly because it came from our, our family. And we had roots in New York, and it was part of our identity. It was part of what we felt made us special, that we were New Yorkers. We were also, I went to a school where there was often only two Jews in the whole school, me and my brother. So that was also kind of, it was all kind of wrapped up in our heads together as far as our identity. So we, we definitely grew up as kind of bi-coastal baseball fans. And, of course, in San Francisco, when the Yankees are playing the Dodgers in the World Series, suddenly everyone's a Yankees fan. Um, and the connections between Yankees and San Francisco are interesting because so many great Yankees are from that area, you know, from Joe DiMaggio to Billy Martin to Lefty Gomez, all of these these people. So it was an interesting kind of synergy between the two places. But of course, and then I moved back to New York to go to graduate school and have kind of build my adult life here. So this this relationship between New York and San Francisco, in not just in, in, in history, politics, culture, and also baseball, has always been interesting to me. So this book was an opportunity to probe that and to look at what is, I think, probably the most important, you know, franchise move of the Dodgers and Giants collectively to California, in you know, American sports history, to look at it from the perspective of the West Coast because the story is so frequently told from the perspective of the East Coast.
0: Yeah, and that's and that's what I obviously want to want to dive into because that's the, arguably the narrative right now. I grew up in the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area myself. Uh, obviously, generations. Uh, mostly from the Yankees uh, side of life, but uh, of course, you know my dad and, and and grandparents, right? Certainly were well aware of and/or certainly made, they made avail of of the Dodgers and the Giants, and and even if they weren't fans of those teams, primarily, right? The the whole hype of all those three teams in the New York metropolitan area, especially when two of them were playing each other, say in the World Series or in a championship series, right? was, you know was uh, electric and dynamic and and Uh, proudly New York and and all of those things, right? But I think, and maybe I'll just open up the Pandora's box here, right? A lot of the narrative, if not all of it or most of it, right, has been uh, either East Coast hued or uh, romanticized from sort of the abandonment, I guess, of certainly the Dodgers largely, but the Giants too as part of the whole mix, uh, leaving the New York metropolitan area and, and, and just going westward and never looking back. But I, this is why this uh, story that you've written is is fascinating to me, because it, it's not completely that way, now, is it?
2: No, and, it's, and there's a lot in what you've said there. So to kind of maybe unpack it a little bit, it is true that from 1947, uh, which was, you know, the Yankees, that was the year, the first time after World War II, where there was a subway series, the Yankees beat the Dodgers, to 1957, which is when the two teams moved west, There is no doubt that New York was the absolute center of the baseball universe, right? Every year during that period, except for 48, at least one New York team and frequently two New York teams were in the World Series. In 1951, two New York teams played in a dramatic, and I want to get back to that in a second, a dramatic postseason playoff, because they finished in a dead heat for first place, to, and the winner got to play the other, Yankee, the other New York team, which was the Yankees, in the World Series. You know, The MVPs were frequently from New York in, in one or both leagues. And not only that, but there were players during that period, and I'm just going to name a few, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Willie Mays, Jackie Robinson, who were he, American celebrities and heroes and historical figures in a way that the phrase baseball star doesn't capture, right? All of those guys were extremely good baseball players. But just to pick a couple, Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays and Joe DiMaggio are not are much more than just baseball players. If you tell the story of Jackie Robinson's life or any of those guys, I'll you know, throw Yogi Berra in there as just what they did on the ball field. You're missing a big part of it. So it was a huge part of the baseball universe, but the baseball universe was much smaller. And, you know, this is in, in the kind of It's often referred to as the golden age, but it really wasn't the golden age at all of baseball. They were failing franchises. Attendance was very low in most ballparks. Uh, The the, the brand of baseball wasn't very good. The American League lagged behind the National League in in, uh, integration, which meant that I mean, there was bringing African American players in, which meant that there was a gap between the quality of play uh, between the between the two leagues and. The Yankees were great during this period. They won the world. They won the pennant every time, every year, but 48 and 54. In those years, the Indians, who were the first American League team to to really bring in African American players, because that's the only way they can compete with the Yankees, um, who were very slow on that front. But all these other teams weren't very good. If you were a fan of the Washington Senators or the Detroit Tigers, you were basically watching teams that would win 75 to maybe you no, know, well maybe 70 to 75 games a year in a good year, and there were not that many memorable players. And if there were great players, like Ted Williams and Stan Musial, if it didn't play New York, no one really paid attention to them. But even in New York, and here's, the real, here's where the kind of sepia-toned memories don't hold up, even in New York, two of those three teams were struggling. The Yankees were not. But, you know, 1951, when Bobby Thompson hits the home run that's known as the shot heard around the world, and, you know, we still talk about it today. You can, any ESPN or MLB countdown of the greatest moments, it's usually number one. But there were 22,000 empty seats at that ballpark. And no 70-year-old former Brooklynite is ever going to say that. The Dodgers, were was some of the best and most exciting and funnest teams in baseball history, were not drawing fans. And a lot of that is due to the changes that were occurring demographically in New York during the decade of the 1950s and the reaction to New Yorkers' to those changes. And you know, I always give this example because he's a prominent, you know, political figure right now, but Bernie Sanders is a great symbol of the the way the storytellers get it wrong. Walter O'Malley in Bernie Sanders' world was this, you know, uh, money-grubbing capitalist who stole the Dodgers from the innocent people of Brooklyn. Now, there is some, I mean, I'm leaving the adjectives, which you can leave in or not, based on your political views aside, there is some truth. Walter O'Malley saw the opportunity to make a lot of money in Los Angeles, but the people of Brooklyn made it easy to leave because they stopped going to the games because the neighborhood had become uh, heavily African-American and they didn't want to go in there and they didn't want to take the subway in there and there was nowhere to park. So the story is, is wrong on, on, in the front that Baseball was really failing in the 50s and was beginning to fail in, in New York City. The one exception was the Yankees. I mean, and I guess is, there's is some truth that if you win the World Series every year, you don't have to worry about attendance. Um, and they did very well. And they, because they were in Yankee Stadium, they were easily accessible from places like Westchester County. So they, they did very well during this period. But then the other half of the story that, that to me is central to the book is that once these teams moved west, these teams moved west, it opened up. Major League Baseball, in so many positive ways, and made the game, in my view, well, not a, a objectively, a bigger, more national, more international, and in my subjective view, a better league and a better game.
0: Yeah, well, uh, some of this also wrapped up in what you just said, right, is, is also the story, I mean, you sort of hinted at it, a story of New York as well, right? And, and you know, not only from some of the things that you've already mentioned, but, I, you know, from a, I guess, you know, it's looking at baseball by itself, right? Competitively, you know, largely an East Coast and nominally midwest kind of centric thing, right? No real deep south, no nothing certainly west of the Mississippi or west of St. Louis for that matter. It's also a bit,, uh, I guess, th- looking through the lens of history, repetitive and or I don't want to say boring, but it, it's it's kind of you know new york centric i guess the the interest in baseball and the passion for it right probably linked very inextricably with how close you maybe were to the the new york metropolitan area and how much you loved or hated those teams
2: for major league baseball not for baseball in general because people love playing baseball all over america true but major league baseball particularly then i i would agree very very much with that and this also there's a, there's a new york story here which is that uh, within a few years of the Dodgers and Giants leaving, and they were a little bit ahead of the curve, the city really begins to change economically, demographically, socially, and culturally. And people who dislike those changes have kind of married that to their anger about the Dodgers and Giants leaving to tell this reinforcing story. But the city was beginning to change a lot by the late 1950s. And in addition, the country was beginning to change. In 1950, New York was at its height of the as, as a hegemon for American finance, culture, uh, government, political power, you know, that it would be at more than any other time in its history. And the United States was really a post really emerging as the post-war hegemon because Europe had been so devastated by World War II. By 1960s and 70s, the center of power and population is moving south and west. And it becomes, in 1960, if the Giants and Dodgers hadn't moved west, it would have been really absurd to have no major league team in California. And at the same time, bringing good established teams with recognizable stars to California was the best way to build major league baseball out there.
0: All right. So let's let's narrow down then to, you know, 1957 and maybe the the handful of years prior, right? Maybe we can sort of Get a little bit more, get our fingernails a little bit more dirty as to sort of maybe some of the specifics, right? Because I think part of the whole narrative that sort of dominates on this stuff is 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 not just, it's not just a move, but it's two teams simultaneously, right? Two thirds of baseball, pro, uh, major league baseball, leaving in in one dramatic fell swoop, right? Yes. But that doesn't happen overnight for no reason, right? It, there there are things that build up to that. And maybe you can enlighten our audience, perhaps certainly through this lens of the West Coast viewpoint of it as to why then.
2: And there are push and pull factors, right? So a major pull factor is that Los Angeles is booming. And by the mid-50s, by much earlier, people are realizing, teams are realizing, wow, we, there's real money to be made out there. In fact, on, Sunday, on a Sunday in the early 40s, the American League team met and voted to approve the St. Louis Browns, who were always struggling, to move to Los Angeles. The problem was they took that vote on December 6, 1941. And as you may know, or I hope everyone knows, something happened the next day that made the movement of Major League Baseball franchises both not exactly big news and also much less feasible because the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and we were into World War II. So as early as 1941, that thought was being bandied around. By the initial post-war period, it's clear that someone has to move to LA. It's also clear that whoever gets there first is going to make a fortune. And one of the teams that is even raised is the Yankees might move to L.A. The Yankees at one point deny the rumor that they're moving to L.A. they weren't going to move to Los Angeles, but that's how big that market is. And sometimes when we just think of it through the angle of New York, we don't realize that. Now, for the Dodgers to move to Los Angeles without the Giants would have done two things. It would have seeded the New York market, their market essentially, even though they were rivals – a lot of those younger fans would have become Giants fans. The Giants would have taken, probably taken up Robert Moses, who was the kind of the the, the, the kind of construction building and park czar of New York, uh, on his offer to build a ballpark in eastern Queens, in the area that we now where Citi Field now is, and would have captured, you know, split the hugest market in the country with the Yankees. So the Dodgers didn't didn't really want to cede that to the Giants, and also they knew that the logistics. Of moving to California as only one team wouldn't work. The travel would be too much. They would not have any natural rivals. So it made sense to move with the Giants. Now, the Giants, for their part, their incentive was they had to leave. They, they were much doing much worse with regards to attendance. They won the World Series in 1954. And by 55-56, we in the bottom half of attendance for the whole National League. They weren't making any money. And, and they, you know, they did not have as many of the big stars that the Dodgers had, but they did have a center fielder named Willie Mays who had emerged. I mean, and, and, you know, you could argue Mantle and Mays, I think throwing Duke Snyder in that mix is, is, is a, is a kindness to the Duke and is a, uh, and is a reflection of how we want to remember the 1950s. But Duke Snyder was never in the same category as a player. I hope the old Dodger fans will forgive me for this as Mays and Mantle. But Mays was arguably the best and most exciting player in baseball in a long time. And fans weren't going to see him. The Giants had to leave. But so O'Malley, and Stoneham in this discussion. Now there is this sense that O'Malley. We used to joke at, at Candlestick Park. Walter O'Malley moved the Dodgers to, to sunny California, and tricked Horace Stoneham into coming here, meaning San Francisco. That's that's a bit of an exaggeration, and there's also a little more to it than that. And I'm gonna. And, and you, as I mentioned, I grew up in San Francisco, but Horace Stoneham was a New Yorker, and he liked cities. And in the 1950s. Uh, pardon me for saying this, as today, San Francisco was a much more cosmopolitan, much more interesting. It feels much more like a city to a New Yorker.
0: Yeah, I, 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 akin to Boston, I think, uh, Western. Right, it,
2: even it? it's densely populated. You, don't need, you can walk places you don't need. It's not as it's car-centered. You don't have a highway all the time. And back then, it was more cosmopolitan and, and more kind of culturally rich than than Los Angeles. So so Stoneham probably wanted San Francisco. San Francisco had a good baseball tradition. The San Francisco Seals were uh, a Pacific Coast League, which kind of like a high minor league, almost like a 4A league. Uh, the, Los Angeles had two teams in the Pacific Coast League, the Hollywood Stars and the Los Angeles Angels. But the Seals were like the Yankees of the Pacific Coast League. They dominated. They were the most famous. And, and even now, when you go to, to Oracle Park where the Giants play, you'll see people in Seals hats and jackets and T-shirts. So, so it made sense for him to come to San Francisco. And the thought was, we're going to transport this rivalry to the West Coast so give us both a running start. And that is, in fact, what happened. And, and famously, you know, the first game ever in the opening day of 1958, April 15th, the Dodgers went to San Francisco, and the, you know, to play the Giants in the first big league baseball game out west and in California. And uh, the Giants won 8 nothing. You know, it was a nice win for the Giants. And the headline in the Chronicle the next day, which is the San Francisco Chronicle, the major paper still out there, the headline was great. It said, we murder the bums. Right, and and what that meant? One, it meant the Giants won, but also you know the rivalry is going to be fine, right? We're even using that they were no longer the bums once they moved to Los Angeles, but the rivalry was intense, and that made that helped make both teams succeed out there. And in the lean years for the Giants in the mid '70s, which I get to in the book, there were years when their nine home games against the Dodgers would generate 22, 23 percent of all their attendance for the whole season. So that rivalry. It is is it's grown it's developed it's changed, but it's remained in many respects the oldest and the strongest in in baseball, even more than the Yankee Red sox in some regards, not in all regards
0: no i i would agree uh, but let me ask you sort of two sort of follow up yes. questions along those lines right so walk me or, or through or or maybe enlighten me as to the end of the war and then to, to 1957, right? You're mentioning sort of 1941-ish, uh, fatefully or the day before the United States enters the, the Second World War, you know, the, the, the dreams of going to Los Angeles. But there's a pretty big gap there in post-war uh, all the way to 1957, almost a whole decade, right? Why did it take so long, perhaps, to finally uh, get sort of all the things in motion to then reheat that idea? And then second... I guess is why Brooklyn and New York as franchises as the ones to go westward, right, especially when New York was such a center of baseball?
2: I think that's that's to me the most fascinating question, and, then those, and I think those are interrelated. Those questions are related. So remember that that this talk had been going on since the early '50s, but there, was, there were some as, as always, there are always kind of eyes that needed to be dotted and T's that need to be crossed and details that need to be ironed out, and this included questions around ballparks, where would they play, right? This included kind of, and I don't know the exact, you know, years on this, but that jet transportation would get to the level where you could fly out there more easily, right? Because otherwise you couldn't do it. So there was a kind of a technological side to this. And also in the immediate post-war years, baseball was back because, you know, people were back from the war. They had a little money. There was something to do. So it boomed a little bit in the immediate post-war years, and that took some of the heat off of it. Now, Again, there were talks of different franchises moving to Los Angeles, not just the Yankees and the Browns, but others. That was always out there. And remember, there were franchise moves. So the Philadelphia Athletics moved to Kansas City in the early 50s, and the Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee in the early 50s. They didn't last very long, neither of those franchises did. But so already we're beginning to see that franchises moving, Eastern and Midwestern cities losing, or Eastern in this case, losing their second franchise to points uh, west and south. That trend is already happening. So, you know, a city like Detroit or Cleveland, well, the Cleveland was good back then, but Detroit or, you know, Cincinnati, which is actually further west than most, they would have fought very hard to keep their own their teams. But by the early 50s, the kind of, the, remember, the, the Connie Mack just broke up that ninth, early, late 20s, early 30s, excellent Philadelphia athletics team and never rebuilt it. So the Phillies were the primary team in Philadelphia. It stopped making sense to have two cities, especially with the demographic shift. But, it, but, but California was different because there, the PCL was a real factor there. And, and in both places, the local fans weren't, would not have... It's not at all obvious to me that if you had moved the St. Louis Browns and the Philadelphia Athletics to the West Coast in 57 or 58, 58 instead of you know, moving well, the Oakland A's game a decade later, that it would have caught on the same way. People... You know, when I was growing up at Candlestick Park, these older guys, you know, at the ballpark would always tell me, like as if it was an important piece of cultural knowledge, the way you might pass on something about your family history to your child. Remember, we had Major League Baseball here before the Giants. That was important to their identity as, as, as San Franciscans. and It was probably the same in Los Angeles, and it was certainly the same in San Diego, where there was also a good PCL team. So you needed good teams that were, with that today's language, you needed a good brand out there, the Major League Baseball brand, which wasn't even made, it was the leagues, the National and the American League, wasn't necessarily good enough. A team that moves there and continues to be in seventh place in the American League, and it was functioning as a farm team for the Yankees, like the Philadelphia Athletics did for so many years, and then the Kansas City Athletics, too, would not have survived out there. And it would not have brought the dynamism of, of that these two teams brought. And at first, it was particularly the Dodgers, who had been... Walter O'Malley was an innovator, right, in terms of uh, integrating Major League Baseball, but also his approach to Dodger Stadium when we finally got it built, which was to really market it differently. And the Giants, maybe it would have been any team out there, but it happened that the Giants had already begun to be one of the teams that was more aggressively uh, scouting in the Caribbean and ended up in their first few years in California, in San Francisco, really uh, being the, the leader and I don't think they can have credit for this in bringing players from that part of the world, particularly the Dominican Republic, into baseball. And, and many of the first great Dominican players were with the Giants. So, so these teams bring in teams with, with, that had a good brand, that had good players, that could contend right away. The Dodgers won the pennant in their second year there. The Giants uh, won the pennant in an extraordinarily dramatic playoff against the Dodgers, on October 3rd, 1962, 11 years to the day after Bobby Thompson's home run, and that was only their fifth season there. So you had good contending teams and it helped baseball catch on. Remember, by the mid-60s, the move to Kansas City has failed and the move to Milwaukee has failed. So franchise movements, it wasn't a given they would succeed at all.
0: what's this the arizona office of tourism spring training oh my god hey this spring follow your favorite baseball teams to arizona for cactus league spring training amazing weather and landscapes exciting outdoor adventure incredible food arizona it's the perfect home base for baseball fans follow your favorite baseball teams to arizona for cactus league spring training 10 stadiums, 15 Major League Baseball teams, and 75-degree temperatures. Ah, awesome. And all 10 stadiums are in the Greater Phoenix area, all within 50 miles of the city. Meet players, get autographs before the games, and just enjoy an old-fashioned ballpark experience in beautiful preseason weather down in Arizona. Check out amazing restaurants and bars nearby, including tons of craft breweries like Four Peaks, Angel's Trumpet Ale House, and Goldwater Brewing Company. Enjoy live music from local and national artists and explore museums featuring everything from native heritage to modern art to musical instruments from around the world and more. Arizona is known for its incredible landscapes, too, as well as thrilling outdoor adventures. So hit the road and explore Arizona's urban centers or ghost towns or artsy communities or quirky outposts. You can hike, you can bike, you can take Jeep tours, hot air balloon rides, skydiving, jet skiing, or just taking in a good old-fashioned sunset. No matter what you love to do, Arizona has you covered. Check out must-see destinations from your bucket list like the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, Horseshoe Bend, and even the great Old West City of Tucson. Bringing the kids along for spring training? Hey, Arizona's a fantastic destination for families too. Family-friendly resorts and hotels offer plenty of fun for kids of all ages from water parks to horseback rides to games and activities. Arizona also has tons of stuff for kids to do and see like wildlife parks and science museums, aquariums, and even dude ranches. So what are you waiting for? Plan now for your spring training getaway at visitarizona.com slash spring training. That's visitarizona.com slash spring training. Hey, and don't forget, send us a postcard. mentioned push and pull a bit ago. So the push is probably the dominant sort of theme in in a lot of the narratives from the East Coast being, you know, sort of abandoned by these two teams. But but maybe you can enlighten me and our audience a bit on, maybe describe a bit of the pull, right? Because you're mentioning the PCL teams, there's obviously uh, quality baseball being played, you can make the argument that, you know, for a, a good period of time, there's you know, could that be good enough for those uh, those locations? But but what was the romantic uh, uh, entreaties? What were the what were those going on from from the West Coast cities? Right, because it takes two to tango, right? Amal is not just going to sort of you know just move out without sort of uh, uh, extracting some kind of uh, a benefit. I, and I'm also curious too, the let's call it my word collusion, perhaps between uh, the two ownerships to kind of do this in tandem together westward.
2: Yes, and and. The, the the pull factor was that Los Angeles began to be really kind of outraged that they didn't have a major league team. So Nelson Paulson and other mayors are saying, you know, we're now the third and eventually the second largest city in the country. Why don't we have a big league team? They wanted it. And 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 in Los Angeles, it is it is it was I mean, it may be different now, but certainly for much of the twentieth century it was more difficult to craft an identity around being a, a Los Angelino than than around being a San Franciscan. So there was the sense that if we bring Major League Baseball here, it will really unify the city. It will bring revenue in, but it will it will help the city's identity and help us feel big league. So that was a real – that was why they were courting them. And what they ended up doing was you know, giving Walter O'Malley this valuable land in which to construct Dodger Stadium. And there were a lot of fights around that, which maybe we can get to later. But that was part of the courtship. He wanted – I want to be able to build a ballpark. I want it to be state-of-the-art. And he had a vision for how to really – uh, make that a market that in a different way, which he succeeded in doing. And the first few years the Dodgers were in LA, it was the place to be in Los Angeles. So that was the, the, the pull factor from Los Angeles was this notion of this will make us a big league city. Now I happen to have talked for a later book to a very um, prominent San Francisco historian who, uh, who said who grew up rooting for the seals because he's older and is now, and then became a Giants fan when the giants came to town, but he's in his eighties now. And he said, we were always a big league city. We didn't need the giants to prove that, and that is that is spoken like a true old time San Franciscan because San Franciscans you know I mean they, they we, we know we're big league we don't need the giants for that, but on the other hand, we also know if we 're big league, we deserve this right and but on the, but on the third hand, there's no third hand the, the the loyalty and the affection for the seals was stronger, so it was more of, of a challenge but if Los Angeles was going to get baseball, then we were going to also, because that would have been a, a slap in the face to San Francisco, because San Francisco certainly then, with good reason, you know, thought of themselves as the more important cosmopolitan city than than uh, Los Angeles. That may be true today, but it wasn't true. In, by, by the seventies, eighties, and nineties, that had changed, and you know, the tech boom and all that may have may have reversed that a little bit. But that was how it was seen, and 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 the collusion or cooperation between the the owners was that it it was you needed two teams to do this. And the, the Giants had explored a move to Minna, Minneapolis, where they had a minor league team. The Dodgers had played a few games in New Jersey in the mid-50s, in 56 and 57, in Newark, or Jersey City, pardon me. So, so they were, this was already, there was a sense that this couldn't last. And what they were saying, but the other pull factor that there wasn't, was there was no pull factor to stay in New York. The city wasn't building them the kind of ballparks that they thought they needed. If the city had said, now, I'm not saying they should have, but if they happen to have said that, you know, we will build Brooklyn, we will build you a ballpark in this neighborhood in downtown Brooklyn that you want, and there will be parking, and the New York Giants, we will, you know, instead of building more housing, or we will tear down these buildings for eminent domain and, build a, and re- revamp the polo grounds and build a parking lot, they might have stayed. But the city of New York wasn't doing that. Robert Moses made a good offer in that if you look at the geography of New York, Eastern Queens is a great place for a baseball team because as people move to the suburbs, it's easy for them to get there. It's easy drive. But Walter O'Malley was saying, you know, we're the Brooklyn Dodgers, not the Queens Dodgers. Now, part of the reason he was saying that is he wanted to move to Los Angeles because he could have made that work. Right? There's another scenario here where O'Malley moves out to where the Mets play now and the Dodgers, in terms of their fan base, continue with what has become the Mets fan base and the Giants go to Minnesota. And go to Minneapolis before the Senators move the Twins out there. Uh, a few years later, or before the Senators become the Twins and move out there a few years later, that might have happened too. But that's not where this—that's not where this landed. Because I think primarily because O'Malley realized that that lost, someone had to get to Los Angeles and it and it should be him.
0: Well, let's let's talk about Robert Moses for a second because I'm actually uh, rereading the Power Broker, uh, and there's obviously lots d- devoted to sort of all of this stuff, right? And obviously, you know, the Mets wouldn't, and, and the Continental League, and all these things that sort of came in the years after this move, right? But I, 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 it feels to me that but Moses was almost sort of the, I don't know, the uh, like a lot of his his career, sort of the quiet power, sort of behind the scenes, either uh, potentially attractive or. or, or Arguably uh, repellent uh, in all of this, but but I can't also can't think that the two owners were also blameless in this too. I I guess what I'm trying to get at is how real was the potential for each of these two teams to stick around in New York. I mean, you see those those drawings of what I guess was going to be in a, a dome stadium, right? Uh, how real was that? How fanciful was that, right? Uh, or was it all a ploy to kind of just you know leverage and and ultimately
2: leave? I think there was. I think there was no chance the Giants were going to stick around. As they were by by the mid '50s, even after winning it all in '54, they were the third team here in New York, and they were not going to make it. And the city was not really interested in courting them, particularly. The Dodgers, you know, the, there was a proposal with this Dome Stadium in Brooklyn, Central Brooklyn, which I don't think that was ever going to get built, but. If they had been interested in Moses' offer, Moses's offer for the Eastern Queens Ballpark, which is now, like I said, where City Field is more or less, they probably could have done that. That was the compromise: the Giants go to Minnesota, like I said, or somewhere, and the Dodgers, and then they get, then they share the biggest market in the country, which is huge at that time, which was huge and remains huge today. Ultimately, O'Malley got an O'Malley. You know, he would have stayed in New York rather than go somewhere else, but he wanted to go to L.A., but the problem he had was that he was smart enough to know that going to L.A. just as one team couldn't work, so he had to bring the Giants along. And for Stoneham, you know, who, who was never a great innovator in terms of marketing in the way that O'Malley was, but for Stoneham, the move to San Francisco probably helped him financially. Now, by the mid-70s, which we don't even got into yet, he's broke. Right, and he ends the, the. Well, Horace Stone ends up selling Willie Mays to the Mets, uh, and in part because he couldn't pay his In large part because he couldn't pay his salary, and the franchise basically goes into receivership. And in January of 1976,
0: the ultimate irony, of course, to the Mets, right? Because this right. It's, it's, it round trips the story, doesn't it?
2: But but also because Mays wanted it. That's where he wanted to go. You know, so so it was. I mean, Mays was a highly respected and beloved player in the Giants. Really, people. I mean, I've talked to people in the Giants. Uh, organization who were there, and they said, you know, we couldn't really, we didn't quite know what to do without Willie Mays, it seemed so, it was just wrong, it didn't feel like the Giants anymore, playing for another team, but for Willie Mays, it was back to New York, where he was, remains beloved today, I mean, Willie Mays is, is you know, he's in his late 80s, but if he ever comes to New York, he is, you know, he's, he is, even though he played probably three times as many games with the San Francisco Giants as with the New York Giants and the New York Mets combined, he is beloved in this city, as he should be, because he was one of the greatest, even in a short time here, he the greatest players the city ever saw. So it was sending him to the right place. He was a very highly paid, even though he was no longer one of the best players in the league, and the Mets could pay his salary. But that's how bad shape the Giants were economically by the mid-'70s, and partially because they, they couldn't they didn't make the efforts to market themselves, they couldn't adjust, and, also, and they made a series of terrible trades, but also because of that ballpark, which is an important part of the story. All right,
0: well, so let, let's get into the arrival and the early years and then sort of the the later years, because obviously I think there's a whole generation or two, especially those listening to this show who – you know, don't even recognize that these two teams were domiciled in the New York metropolitan area. That's
2: right. That they, they don't teach that in schools appalls me. But you're probably right.
0: Well, I, look, I, I, there's even even shorter time frames than that. I mean, teams from the '70s and the '80s. People don't even. But but uh, you know, I digress. Yeah. Uh, get off, get off my lawn. Uh, but so, explain to me how both San Francisco and Los Angeles generally, uh, shall we say, took root. Right. Obviously, temporary stadiums to start. Uh, but uh, it seems like it was a relatively a strong hit from, from the get-go and looked pretty brilliant pretty quickly,
2: these moves. Certainly for the Dodgers. The Dodgers moved out there in 58 and in 1959 with this team that was half the old boys of summer Dodgers. Carl Farillo is there. Uh, Gil Hodges is there. Pee Reese is there. And half the new, what became the kind of go-go L.A. Dodgers. Drysdale and Koufax are emerging as pitching stars. You know, um, I think Willie and Tommy Davis are on the team by then. So it's a different feel of a team. Um, they win the pennant in 59. And the city goes, I mean, this is, this is enormous. And, and it really solidifies the bond between Los Angeles and the Dodgers. The Dodgers go on to win the pennant in 63, 65, and 66. And they win the World Series. They won the World Series in 59. In 63, they go back to New York and they beat the Yankees and they sweep them. This, you know, this is great for Los Angeles. In 65, they beat the Twins. That was the famous uh, Sandy Koufax in pitch game one. Uh, because I believe it was Hashanah, but then he came back and, you know, just basically dominated and pitched that game seven, and then 66, they get swept by the Orioles, um, which is kind of the Frank Robinson Orioles team. But they, so that, and they were also, continued to be one of the teams that was most, uh, brought in the most, had the most African-American players. They didn't, they they obliterated the kind of informal three-player rule. They had and, and Los Angeles then had a pretty large African-American community, so this was a real bond. And they took advantage of being in Hollywood, so guys, you know, Players are appearing on television shows and movies, and there's crossover, and the stars are going to the ballpark. Now, there is there are challenges around the ballpark because there was no real fit place for them to play. They ended up starting in the LA and Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, which is for football fans where the Rose Bowl is played. And if you've seen the Rose Bowl on television, you know that it's not a natural place for a ballpark. So huge center field, but short porches, and hard to get close. But within a few years, they build Dodger Stadium, which... Is was this beautiful state-of-the-art ballpark? Now the politics there were very complicated because they built it in an old Mexican-American neighborhood uh, near Chavez Ravine, and it was the second time that families had been pushed out of that neighborhood. Uh, to you know, to, first to build housing, uh, new modern housing, and second to build this ballpark. And there were real, and there was a real rift between Los Angeles the Dodgers, and the Mexican-American community in Los Angeles. Now, in the early 1960s, if you were thinking of a team that should not pick a fight with a growing ethnic group, you would say, well, in Los Angeles, you wouldn't want to pick a fight with the Mexican-American community because it was growing so much. But they did. And for a long time, Mexican-Americans did not cotton to the Dodgers because of the history. Uh, there were you know, tele- televised um, images of, of you know, older women being pulled out of their homes so that Walter O'Malley, this rich guy from New York, could have a ballpark basically for free. So that really chafed uh, the Mexican-American community, and that lasted until 1981. And then, again, for younger fans, 1981, the first really, truly great Mexican-American, Mexican star, he wasn't Mexican-American at the time, who not only was a great pitcher, but really captured the imagination of all of baseball, in some sense, all of America, was Fernando Valenzuela. Oh, sure. And that that helped Los Angeles bond with this enormous group of people who were predisposed to like baseball, and that gave the Dodgers another bump, which really has carried them into this century. I mean, the Dodgers-Giants rivalry is very strong right now. But if you go to a Dodgers-Giants game at either ballpark, and I recommend that you do, although it's a lot safer we know to be a Dodger fan in San Francisco than a Giants fan in L.A. Yeah, there is so, that, isn't there? There is that, so I don't really go. But anyway, if you go, one of the great things about the rivalry is it's totally bilingual now. Right? There are T-shirts in Spanish and in English. There are people yelling stuff in Spanish and in English. It's, a really, it's become a very fun part of the rivalry. So that's, I mean, I'm going up, you know, there's a long history here, and it's all in the book, but that's kind of, I think, the key moments. The other key moment here on the Dodgers side, which to me is fascinating, is that in 1966, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale coming out of a 65 World Series win where, you know, in the mid-60s when the Dodgers were winning pennants, these two pitchers would often start more than half of their team's games. And if you're starting half of your team's games with Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax, you know, you're going to win a lot. These were great pitchers. And, you know, really different personalities. Drowback, Co- Drysdale is from Southern California, kind of Hollywood good looks. Sandy Koufax is this, you know, uh, uh, Jewish guy from Brooklyn who, uh, you know, is, is a very good-looking guy, but in a different kind of way than, than Don Drysdale was. Um, and, and they hold out. They say, if you, in spring training of 66, they say, if you want us to play on this team, you've got to pay us a million dollars. It's like that Austin Powers movie. One million dollars <laughs> um, divided over three years and, and split evenly between us, which is really a concession by Kofax because he was a better pitcher at the time. And the Dodgers say no, and they hold out collectively, and they end up settling for a lot of money, but not for quite that much. And later on, spring uh, that spring training, the Players Association, seeing that collective bargaining, you know, maybe the way to actually get some more money to the players, goes out and hires. Marvin Miller, this very smart, but very left of center and very left of center um, labor lawyer. And he creates the Major League Baseball Players Association, which is much stronger than the unions of other professional sports. But the first real collective bargaining in the modern era is Koufax and Drysdale a few weeks before Marvin Miller. So they're a very influential team in many ways. And I could go on, you know, to Hideo that's, Nomo that's, that's, and all of very that. very interesting and not so obvious. No, it's not. But to me, it's it's, it's a great story. And and at one point in the story, Koufax says, "Well, I'm going to go and just play, be an actor and play in this movie, The Rifleman," um, which you could only say. Imagine if you were holding out, you know, I don't know, hypothetically, you know, uh, a few years earlier, Eddie Matthews and Henry Aaron in, in Milwaukee and saying, "I'm going to go be the Rifleman," right? What does that even mean, right? But in Hollywood, you could say that. Um, Sandy Kovacs did not end up acting in The Rifleman, although the, the star of that movie was Carol O'Connor, who later, beca- or he was in that movie, who later became uh, famous, Ring Archie Bunker. But that's kind of the Dodgers. The Giants had a much more complicated relationship with their city, and a lot of this has to do with the legacy of the Seals, where people were, they felt we had a good team. You know, what people are saying in the press, we traded a great PCL team for a mediocre major league team. Right, which is not exactly what happened.
0: Even though, obviously, it was a minor league team, right? They, people didn't see the trade-up as, as being worth the- it.
2: Was, they did not see it that way at the time. And, and you know, if you talk to older San Franciscans, that, that's the point, is that, yes, in New York you see the Seals as a minor league team, but it was, for most of the time they weren't affiliated until the mid-50s. So an unaffiliated minor league team, you know, the pennant race mattered. And there were players, you know, who, who, who were good enough who just didn't want to go play in the major leagues. Because it was, would you rather play for the Cleveland Indians or the San Francisco Giants if you're from, or the Seals, if you're from California when you can make more money both on and off the field for the Seals? So it's very high-level minor league. And really popular players. I mean, Lefty O'Doul, who managed the uh, Seals into the early 1950s, was you know the, the, the most, probably the most famous baseball figure in San Francisco for a generation. But in any case, but the Giants moved out there and started playing in Seals Stadium, which, is a, which was, it doesn't exist anymore, a great ballpark in the kind of 16th and South Van Ness, like that part of town, kind of as a car dealers now. And and the problem with Seal Stadium, and there was a brewery in the background, so you could smell the beer. This is what people say. I was never there. Smell the beer being made. The problem was it just wasn't big enough for Major League Baseball, not in terms of the field, but in terms of the capacity. You couldn't get 30,000 people there, right? So it just wasn't big enough. So they decided to build this ballpark. Um, and, and Horace Stonem, smarting from the experience in New York demanded, I believe it was 10 or 15,000 parking places, knowing that people would drive to the ballpark and the people of San Francisco said, Oh, we've got just the place. And out at Candlestick point, which is near the airport and accessible by the highway. And if you go there on a day in a daytime, it's beautiful. But by the sixth inning, if your seat is under, is now covered by the shade of the upper deck, it can drop 15 degrees in an inning, in an inning. And at nighttime, I mean, I you know it's it's January in New York now, and I will, when I go out today to walk my dog in the morning, I don't wear as many clothes or as heavy clothes as I did in the 70s to go to night games at Candlestick Park. It was absolutely freezing. You would get into the, the 30s with a windchill in a climate where people you know really don't have the clothes for that. No one would go out in that, in that part of you know. San Francisco has microclimates which non-San Franciscans don't understand, so that if you were from Say the Noe Valley neighborhood, and I apologize for naming neighborhoods that might not mean much, but in the kind of central eastern part of the city, you know, it could be 20 degrees warmer when you left your house for a night game, 25 degrees sometimes. So it was, the, the, t- the ballpark was hard to get to, and the weather was terrible. And that hurt the team. That hurt the team's relationship with the city. And then, oddly enough, you know, another sign of this is that it's hard to believe now, but well into the 20th century, the all-time most popular giant was Willie McCovey, not Willie Mays. And the reason for that was that McCovey never played for the New York Giants. And San Franciscans, they wanted somebody who was really theirs. So, So that took a little time to get used to. And then it's overlooked. But, you know, the Dodgers won in their second year in Los Angeles. They won it all. They beat the Yankees. They beat the White Sox. And in 63, they beat the Yankees. In 62, the Giants, in one of the great World Series of all time, played the Yankees and they had a rally in the bottom of the ninth inning, losing one nothing, and they got the winning tying run on third, and the winning run on second, and the winning run was um, was uh, Willie Mays, which meant that you had one of the fastest guys in baseball, a single uh, wins the game in the World Series, and they had Willie McCovey, this young left-handed hitting stud up, and McCovey, he described it, he passed away about a year ago in October of 2018, but McCovey said, "I never hit the ball that hard in my life," and he just hit it so hard. But the Yankees, for whatever reason, and, and you know, we see a lot of shifts now. Of course, as part of the game. But back then, you only shifted against kind of the biggest, most most you know strongest left-handed pull hitters. They always shifted against Willie McCovey because he was such a big, strong left-handed pull hitter. And Bobby Richardson, who was a you know fine fielding second baseman for the Yankees for many years, didn't shift. He wasn't shifting, and he was playing essentially out of position and McCovey hit it right on the screws, but right to Bobby Richardson. And if that ball goes through, the Giants win the World Series in 62, and their relationship is different. But it didn't. And then they finish, you know, from like 65 to 69, they finish in second place every year, including the first year of the NL West, and they never get back to the World Series. And by the time they get back, it's 1989, they get swept, there's an earthquake through halfway through the World Series. It's very hard for them to bond with the city, and part of the reason is that the ballpark is so bad and attendance is so low that the Giants, there's always rumors about them leaving. In 1976, uh, they were gone. The Toronto newspapers were running headlines. We finally get Major League Baseball. Should we keep, the, who should we hire as a manager? Where will we finish in the National League East? I mean, that was in the Toronto newspapers. And these this, that, that headline ran in the papers one day before the new mayor got sworn. in. imagine you've been elected mayor in a, Super competitive election, and you're a sports fan and an all-city basketball player like uh, the former Mayor George Moscone was, and your first day on the job, you're not trying to do anything as you promised the voters. You've got to keep the Giants. And, you know, Moscone scrambled, and and he kept the Giants. Bob Lurie bought the team. And then uh, in, in November 1978, George Moscone was assassinated. It's a little political history, but it just gives you a flavor of things. And and in 1992, there's another – several mayors go by, and a new mayor who was elected in 91 is a guy named Frank Jordan, and he spends all of his first year because the papers are – the Giants are gone. They're in Tampa. You know, the Sporting News, Sports Illustrated, the San Francisco Chronicle, the New York Times, the LA Times are reporting Giants finally leave. They can't make a go of it in San Francisco. And at the last minute, a San Francisco group of – ownership group bought the team, including a guy, Peter McGowan, who died last year, about a year ago who had grown up in New York as a New York Giants fan and then moved to San Francisco as a, you know, as, a, as a grown man and stayed a Giants fan and became a very wealthy man through the Safeway grocery chain, they bought the team and they kept them in San Francisco. But the real bond between the team and the city, the real part when they become cemented as an important part of the fabric and the culture and important institution in San Francisco, for my money, begins in t- all the way in 2000 when they played their first game at the new ballpark, which is now Oracle Park. So the Giants ended up with one of the absolute best ballparks in the United States, but it took a very, very long time, including you know 40 years at Candlestick Park, which was just dreadful. And then they finally got these three—they won, they won their three World Series in a very short period of time, but that didn't happen until this decade. So for San Francisco, it took a lot longer. But today, they are the premier marquee sports franchise in, in the Bay Area, even if the 49ers win the Super Bowl this year. You will still see more Giants hats than, than Niners hats, like when I go out there right before, you know, in later this month.
0: Well, you also didn't mention, and and uh, maybe for a good reason, the arrival of the A's in 68. Yes. So yeah. that that didn't help either. So I, were they just unlucky on all these different fronts? Was it mismanagement? Was it just, you know, a comedy of errors? I mean, like, by comparison to their new neighbors to the South.
2: I mean, I— I do talk about the A's in the book a bit. And, and one thing I say in the book is that there was a consensus view by 73, the A's only got there in 68, that they couldn't, that the Bay Area wasn't big enough for two teams. And that consensus view lasted well into the 90s. It was kind of people were amazed that both these teams stayed.
0: But even before that, right? So wh- why would Finley and Major League Baseball think that
2: even circa 68, it would be? Well, the bigger. Giants were doing okay in the 60s, right? They were they're, they're they were doing fine because they were so good that they, you know, if you had Mays, Cepeda various combination of Alouz, McCovey, and Marichal, you could draw fans, right? So they were, they were doing okay. But when the A's came, you know, it was a mistake. The A's, even when they were winning those World Series, 72, 3, and 4, their attendance was terrible. They were, there was always a difficult franchise, franchise there. But I think to your broader question, there's a lot of factors here, some of which we haven't touched on at all. One thing I would say, and I talk about this in the book, is that I think that more than any city in America, major city, San Francisco changed the most. In what we might call, for and I'm putting these in the quotations, the 1960s, which we all know began in the mid 60s and ended in the 70s, sometime and San Francisco ended in the 80s. And in 1964, San Francisco was a normal city, right? It had better food and better views than most cities. That's still true. But it was, you know, it was heavily white, like most cities were in America. It was run by a kind of, you know. a... Uh, uh, understanding between organized labor and business. It was not a particularly left of center place, a particularly progressive state. There's no pure counterculture, I and mean, there's a little beatnik movement, but nothing really substantial. By 1974, San Francisco is the butt of jokes about how crazy it is. And it has a higher crime rate than New York, a higher murder rate than New York. A lot of New Yorkers don't believe that, but it's true. It was, you know, it was the heart of, of kind of the counterculture, the summer of love, later the heart of, of the gay rights movement. It was rapidly changing. And a baseball team seemed like just didn't quite fit in and and didn't know how to market themselves to fit into what was becoming a rapidly changing city. Interestingly, uh, I think a great footnote to history is that when the Giants first moved to, uh, first began exploring the move, the city was discussing possible places for the ballpark. And one of the places they wanted to talk about was Kezar Stadium, which is where the 49ers played for many years. And they would have built that out a little bit. And Kiesa Stadium is right essentially where Haight Street meets Golden Gate Park, right in the heart of what became the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood, what became the kind of world famous, you know, all capitals, Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. So the idea of the Giants having their home right in the middle of that during the late 60s and early 70s would have been quite something. But that didn't happen. But, but there were a lot of things, right? So so one of it was that the city was changing and they couldn't quite figure out until much later how to, how to adjust to that, how to how to build an identity that made sense with the San Francisco that was evolving. Second, you know, they did get a run of bad luck. They had their best years when one of ten teams were going to the postseason, so there's not a lot of playoff. You know, you have the second-best record in the National League today. You're going to the playoffs, right? Today, basically, you know, ten out of 30 teams, so one out of three go to the postseason. So they were just kind of, they got good at just the wrong time. The, The other reason is that beginning in the kind of late 60s and early 70s, when the team had been so good for so long, even though they weren't winning the World Series, but they were a very, very good team. And this farm system that just kept producing great players. I mean you know, Willie Mays is half a generation earlier. But between nineteen fifty eight and nineteen sixty five or so, it's, you know, three Alou brothers, Juan Marichal, Willie McCovey, or three Hall of Famers, Orlando Cepeda, you know, other other great players, other good players And then going into the late 60s, Bobby Bonds, George Foster, it's as if they can just keep producing these great players. And then they start making a series of trades that are just terrible. So they trade George Foster for Frank Duffy. They've traded Gaylord Perry for Sam McDowell. Previously, they traded Orlando Cepeda for Ray Sadecki, thinking we can just magically produce great hitters, and they stop. So the farm system dries up at just the wrong time. The team starts going into free fall after trading Willie Mays midway through 72, right as the A's are running off their their run of, of dominance. The city's economy is, is, is much weaker in 19, by 1975 than it had been in 1958, which means there's fewer people. There are literally fewer people in the city. There's less money in the city. The city, people are focusing on other things. So so all of that hurts, and, and they don't win a World Series. But the biggest thing of all, you cannot tell the story without focusing on Candlestick Park. If they had, in 1958, managed to build a ballpark more or less like Oracle Park in that location – this story would have been totally different but but Oracle Park today you know it's a short walk, or the buses the buses aren't great in San Francisco, but a reasonable bus ride from the financial district it's accessible to many people the public well, it's transportation
0: also, it's also in the city proper right which you right.
2: well is in the city it is in um the within the city boundaries it just never felt that way because it was it was you had to kind of drive out on the highway again a, a it feels, the- it feels
0: more South San Francisco,
2: really. Right, it feels like a suburb, but it technically isn't. But Oracle Park really doesn't. And it's, and it's intimate, and it's beautiful. And, and Council Park was never those things. So that, I mean, I talked to somebody who had worked for, with a team in the 70s in the kind of um, public relations department. He said, one of the, ch- I talked to several people, and they said, one of the challenges we had was that you could never sell tickets in advance. And, and if you're a team and you're not banking season ticket money, you know, you have a hard, hard time. And the reason they, like I said was that people always knew that if they wanted to, they could get tickets. The concept of scarcity simply didn't exist with regards to the Giants and, and their tickets. So people knew. So so they they couldn't sell tickets in advance. By the mid-'70s, they begin relying on these very odd and, and in some senses, brilliant gimmicks, right? So, But also the 80s. So, you know, you Rito, about the, crab, the, the, the crazy the, crab, the <laughs> quad the candlestick. You know, Guido Sarducci doing goofy commercials. And it, they become this offbeat kind of thing where, where it was like, you know, well, I'm into the Grateful Dead. I'm into punk rock. I'm into the Giants, right? That's what kind of what it was like in high school. But, you know, in the 80s when they were bad, because I went to high school and they were really at their worst. But that's not how you build a broad fan base. And they were always the team, right? They are always San Francisco's team. But there was never a really close relationship. And then, of course... I, I, you know, in 1982, in January of 1982, Joe Montana hits Dwight Clark in that end zone, uh, you know, against the Cowboys in the NFC Championship game, and the Niners are off and running. And the '80s belong to the 49ers. You know, but it changed in the, in the beginning of the '90s, but even when the Giants won that pennant in '89, it wasn't as big of a of a deal. So there, that's another bit of bad luck. And then, of course, when they finally make it to the World Series, they run up not against a much better, just a much better team. And the '89 A's were a much better team. This was a team that had. Canseco, Maguire, you know, as they were, I don't know if they'd started doing PEDs yet, but they were certainly playing, you know, great power hitters. They had Ricky Henderson, Dennis Eckersley, Dave Stewart. This was a really solid team. But, you know, they, they get swept by the A's, so that, you know, which is right across the bay, right, which is adding insult to injury. And halfway through, what does anyone remember about that World Series is that there was an earthquake. And that kind of captures what the Giants in the 70s and 80s were like.
0: All right. Well, let's 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 uh, let's round third, and then sort of uh, maybe put a put a bow on this, because obviously this book is is it's it's deep. It's very well researched. It's uh, and this is just frankly uh, scratching quite a bit of the surface of of this story. And it's it's again for for all of our listeners out there that sort of you know think they understand the admittedly sort of one way story. I guess of, of these two teams leaving to go to the West Coast. This is this is why we're having this conversation because it it does sort of bring. Uh, some of these other issues from a more uh, West Coast sort of perspective into view. But maybe you can kind of tie it up a little bit into sort of what you think this move, both symbolically and functionally, meant for Major League Baseball, pro sports looking westward expansionary in general, and then maybe even a smattering, if you don't mind ending on this, your thoughts about where we are with baseball and, and pro sports Today, uh, forgetting about the big money, but are we saturated and is there more room for growth, given that we're 30-some-odd teams for most of the major leagues now?
2: Okay, so let me, let me start with the first, the first question. This had an enormous impact on Major League Baseball, and that's really one of the main points I make in this book. Major League Baseball, first of all, MLB, as it exists today, didn't exist then. So, so we're talking about the two leagues, but we're going to say MLB, Major League Baseball for shorthand, was never national until then. The Giants and Dodgers played their first game in, in San Francisco in 58. Within, by the end of the 60s, there are five teams in California. There are teams in Texas. There's, you know, the, the years between about 57, uh, 50, 57 and really 77 are when baseball just truly becomes national. And that starts with the Giants and Dodgers making the biggest move. The, the athletics moving to Kansas City, remember, that failed, right? So, So this really starts that rolling. Secondly... I think because they were in California, they were able to internationalize the game much quicker. So we haven't mentioned these two names, but Masanori Murakami, who was the first Japanese player in the major leagues, pitched for the Giants in 64 and 65. Interestingly, he got the save in the Johnny Roseboro game, and he was a very effective pitcher. But 64 and 65 is Less than 20, fewer than 20 years after the end of World War II, there are places in America where a Japanese player, Japanese, not Japanese American, would not have felt comfortable, and would not have been welcomed. But in California, there was Japanese American community. There were people he could talk to, he could speak his language, he could, you know, they welcomed him, and that made it much easier. When Hideo Nomo came along in 95, you know, LA was, if, he, if Hideo Nomo had pitched for the Cleveland Indians, even in 95 it wouldn't have meant the same. But because these teams are looking towards the Pacific, they're able to, to really be ground trailblazers in bringing in Asian ball players. And also because it's California. There are always Spanish speakers. They may not be Dominicans or Puerto Ricans, but they speak Spanish. I mean, so that culture is a little bit there. It, they, these two, particularly the Giants, I don't want to say these two teams. It really was the Giants, really internationalized the game with regards to bringing in players from the Caribbean. And I have some of the data on this in the book. But when you stop it, and often the Cardinals get a lot of credit for this, but it really was the Giants that were absolutely in the front on this. Um, but the other thing that they, that they do is that it really becomes – the Giants and Dodgers, I'm just how to phrase this, become the engine for MLB to exert and, and kind of establish this hegemony of, of on profession, professional and organized sports, baseball. So in the 50, early 50s, so through the early 50s, you know, going back to the early 20th century, there's lots of different kinds of baseball in places like California. There's high-level baseball like the PCL. There are barnstorming Japanese-American teams. There's, you know, small towns, you know, watching the local teams. There's just there's, there's barnstorming major league players. There's semi-pro leagues. That all comes to an end with this move. Now, some would say that, obviously, television played a big part of it. But this were you know, you, you cut up California in half with that. San Francisco taking the north, L.A. taking the south, and Dodgers taking the south. And suddenly everyone has a team. And the PCL withers, and it moves the PCL. There are now PCL teams 'Cause it's now an affiliated minor league playing nowhere near the Pacific Ocean, right? Just like hey keeping the name. You know, there's no more barnstorming. And some might say that that baseball becomes less rich, the culture of baseball, the country of baseball becomes less interesting. But that is in fact part of the story of what happened. I also think Walter O'Malley was a groundbreaker in building Dodger Stadium and today when you go to any ballpark, you know, in the major leagues, you are if you have if you have any self-awareness, you know just how much they are, how good they are at separating you from your money. And Walter O'Malley really perfected that or really initiated that with Dodger Stadium, and that wasn't perfected for decades. But this thing is, a stadium is not just a place where you sit on a bench and watch a baseball game. We're going to have stores. We're going to have restaurants. We're going to sell souvenirs. We're going to brand it that way. And, and O'Malley led the way in that as well. So I think there's a lot of different ways that, that, this, that this really began to make MLB a much bigger industry and and we see that you know through today and 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 also you know many of the great stories I talked about Fernando we talked about the collective bargaining so so many of the stories that that and ultimately Barry Bonds with the Giants as a kind of the PED story of baseball in the last 60 years can be told through these two teams not all the stories the story of free agency you would tell through the Yankees but many of the other stories can be and so so that's how i think the impact it had um the second part of your question you know, again, I'm going to focus more on baseball because I'm less, I just don't feel comfortable talking about other sports as much. I don't know them as well. It is, you would be hard-pressed to think of two North American cities if you were going to expand baseball, that, you know, we've got to put a team in, you know, Charlotte and Montreal, right, or, or Las Vegas and, and Portland. You know, these are, Major League Baseball could succeed there, but they, these are, the, the bigger markets tend to be you know, the, the bigger markets are covered. In reality, the best market for, the best if I were putting a new team somewhere, you know, legal issues aside, I would put a third team in the New York area. I don't know how you'd compete with the Yankees, but, you know, the population-wise, that's the place to put a team. I mean, again, that's unlikely to happen, or in the greater Southern California area somewhere. But in my view, the challenge for Major League Baseball is how, in a world that is increasingly global, where Major League Baseball has done a great job, and I'm not, I don't, certainly am not, as you know from the book, I... Criticize, and the thing I'm not 100% either way with Bud Selig, but he really was very good at making baseball more global. And MLB has, through things like the World Baseball Classic and programs and and facilities in other countries, has tried to make baseball more global. But what are the next steps there? Are we simply going to keep trying to get the best players in the world to come to the United States and play for one of our 30 teams? Or do we expand? And I say this in in a previous book, my first baseball book, Will Big League Baseball Survive?, for me, one one scenario is that you put the two teams maybe five, ten years from now, and obviously it's a complicated question, in you put one in Seoul and one in Tokyo, or do you put two in Tokyo and, and you build long, you know, a you play each team five times. Let's say the Cardinals, you would come to the West Coast, they play the Padres, Dodgers, Giants, and then the you know, the Tokyo team and the Seoul team or something. That to me, I mean I'm thinking very big picture here, but that's how baseball can really grow in the next way. Because it is becoming more international. It's becoming popular. It's kind of a niche thing. You know, there are, you know, 10 years ago in the United States, there were people who, if you wanted to kind of signal that you were kind of hip and progressive and cool, you could be a soccer fan. You know, now it's become more popular. Baseball kind of has that niche in Europe. And in, and in Asian countries like Korea and Japan, it's just popular. So that's how I think it might grow in the future.
0: No, and I think, I think actually that that is a, a very much a template for The NFL for the NBA certainly, uh, NHL a little less so, given the but but even still, right? How much further does the sort of expansion, shall we say, of pro sports, you know, the big four or five or six or so sports? How much further can you go? I mean, Major League Soccer, for God's sakes, thirty teams. I mean, arguably maybe a little too fast. And I'm a huge soccer fan and a big believer, and have sort of seen the it come and go and come and go a, a number of times in my lifetime, right? But. But it, but yeah, it is a global village, so to speak, and and logistics and travel aside, you know, I, I, it feels to me like that is sort of sort of the next frontier, which makes this conversation almost a quaint by comparison, right? I, I you know I, you sort of touched on it, but I you know, in many respects, this is also a microcosm of say the evolution of of California, right? You could read your story alongside of you know one of one or two of Kevin Starr's you know opuses on. The history of California, right, and and they're very much in, lock, in in tandem, I guess, with each other as as not only baseball but also the history and, and economic power of, of of California, both in the country and, and nationwide, uh, worldwide,
2: right? I think that's right, and I think that, that to place this move in the context of California history, not just New York history, right? That's that's important. And 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 whereas this does seem like small potatoes compared to you know expanding across the ocean, it's also the foundation, right? You think of this two teams at the same time. Right, yeah, how you integrate that into the schedule, and and how it would open up new markets, which is ultimately what the Giants and Dodgers moving west did. It just made the the, the business bigger and opened up real new markets
0: for it. Well, and you could also make the argument too that it's been become uh, almost de facto uh, outpost for Asia and Asian fans and Asia, Asian adjacency into uh, Major League Baseball, not unlike uh, some of the moves that um, that NBA the NBA has done, although not necessarily those teams, right? But it's it's culturally certainly been, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, the world is your oyster, so to speak, right? And and it's interesting to see uh, if and when and how uh, Major League Baseball and all these other sports can, shall we say, export American play relative to say what soccer does, sort of on an importation basis here in this country. Which is the right,
2: and, and we're beginning to do the import. We've been doing the importing, right? The best, many of the best players in Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, and the less so, you know, are coming here. But the question, especially for Japan and Korea, is they're not going to want to be a minor league, right? They don't want to be a developmental league for the major league of baseball. These are big countries with strong economies and huge, very long, and and great baseball traditions. So that's why the integration of of might makes in other words, integration MLB into something with Japan or Korea might make more sense, and and allow it to be a win win for the people of both countries.
0: All right, last question, and it, it may be a big one, but but yeah, I, I guess in the context of what we've talked about for the last hour and change is. What do you see as the future of of Major League Baseball, aside from maybe globalization and internationalization? I mean, I mean, the sport itself relative to other sports. Right. And I think some others are suffering from it, too, is slowing down or speeding up the game, so to speak, or shortening the games or is baseball, you know, uh, too leisurely? One hundred and sixty two games. Is that sort of, you know, modern and sleek? You know, all that kind of stuff. Where do you sort of see baseball in all of that? Well, through.
2: I should say I wrote a book about this called "Will Big League Baseball Survive Globalization?" That's why, that's why I'm asking. Wait. Okay, so just so we know, um, baseball has a lot of challenges. A challenge that I see is that the the, the way the game is played now—the three true outcomes: home run, walk, um, strikeout—I understand why, because analytically speaking, that's the best way, that's the best strategy. But the product it creates is not a great one. It's hard to fall in love with this brand of baseball. And baseball has to wrestle with that. Also, baseball has to wrestle with finding out ways to appeal to younger fans. it is It is a grandpa demographic, and we've talked I mean I mean, you know we you say that in our conversation about how most many baseball fans don't know that the Giants used to play in New York and the Dodgers in Brooklyn or the Giants mean, and had the Dodgers in Brooklyn. But you know, many baseball fans actually know that because they're they're in their fifties or older. so so it it is it's got to find a way to reach younger fans. And I don't think it does that by gimmicky stuff, right? It's not the kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be more holistic than that. And, and also, what strikes me about baseball is they are leaving a huge, so to speak, amount. They're, huge, they're, they're leaving a huge stone unturned in that they do so little to reach out to female fans. And that starts with excluding girls from playing baseball, right? Girls get pushed to softball, which is a different sport. It's a good sport, but it's a different sport. So I think a comprehensive effort to reach out to half the population might be a good starting place. And then I think baseball has to be willing to take some chances and and to stand up for itself. So, you know, when you start every World Series game at 8, 830 on the East Coast, that means that anyone who has to go to school tomorrow can't watch the end of it. And the reason you're doing that is because you're afraid to go up against football. Well, you know what, maybe you got to roll the dice or, or demand that you get, you know, the Sunday games that are starting at a reasonable hour when you're negotiating that contract with your, you know, with the TV stations. So I think things like that um, would help. I, I, I also, you know, baseball became popular at a time, we talked about this early in the conversation, when the, the media through which people would, would process it was the written word and the radio. And now it is video, right? You you know, when I was growing up, I would look at the box scores every morning. Now, if you're a, a, a fan, you look at the the video every morning. So that's changed, and baseball can adjust that, but they have to find a way to monetize that more. You know, MLB sells some great packages, but they're really only for the most intense fans. So they've got to find a way to kind of bring in other fans, and 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 to kind of monetize that more. And also, I think that I think that there's you know, I'm always struck by how I mean maybe it's just New York, but I think teams in the past were more involved in the community. The Giants used to have a program if you got a certain grade point average in middle school, you got two free tickets to a game. You know, it's a small thing, but it makes a difference with younger fans. The Yankees have all these empty seats. You know, with the way that our technology works today, it can't be too hard to have a way to have to transfer a hundred seats that are being unused to a a you know, an NGO or, or a community organization that works with boys and girls up in, in, in the Bronx near Yankee Stadium and say, you know, can you use 20 tickets to tonight's game? Things like that, which bring in new fans. It's a retail approach, but it brings in new fans. That, you know, in, that, that to me can work. There has to be confidence in the game. On the other hand, you know, there's a lot that's right with baseball right now. It is international, and that is great. I think for the first time ever in the last 20 years, you really are confident that when you're going to a baseball game, even if it's two bad teams, you're seeing the best players in the world. That wasn't always true. right? first, we excluded African-Americans and, and, and Latinos, dark-skinned Latinos. Then we didn't bring in people from Asia. Then we just didn't. And, and for many years, we didn't scout so well. But you are seeing a quality of competition that is the best ever. It may not be every team. You may not feel that way if you're a fan of the Miami Marlins, but you know it is still a very high level of competition. So... So I think there's a lot positive. I don't mean to be just negative, but there is work that is cut out for baseball.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we, I'm sure a whole other discussion around, say, real estate is being sort of part of the the action, not just for baseball, yeah. for sports teams. And, and the media coverage and or rights, right, and all a, that kind of stuff, right? Where fans, you know, filling seats is less important than the revenue that's already guaranteed coming from television and video rights, right? So, and,
2: and coming from the tickets you've sold, whether or not they're used.
0: Exactly right. And, and so uh, a whole nother conversation for yeah. pricing fans out of the marketplace and the changing dynamics of pro sports. And oh, by the way, uh, arguably, uh, and I don't mean to get sort of too political here, but it's, a, it's hardly political. It's, a, it's an economic cycle thing, right? We haven't really experienced the downturn per se in a good 10, 12 years now. And cyclically, we're probably overdue for some kind of, I, there's a generation of fans, baseball and otherwise, who have frankly, and owners, frankly, that have not experienced tougher, leaner times and and Right, well, so, you know, we'll see. Although
2: in real dollars, now to say two more things, in real yeah. dollars, it is more expensive to go to a game than ever, oh, right, so. even if you adjust for inflation. And also, I actually think there's another side of that, which is that the central um, organized sports in general, but, but baseball, I mean, this is what we're talking about, you know, in the 50s, the period right before the move, you know, the highest paid player was maybe making 20 times the average household income. Maybe. Right? Today, it's in the hundreds. And in a context where disparities of wealth are something we talk about in america in a way that we never did in the past with those disparities of wealth being what they are a business that is built on people cheering and following the actions of people making a hundred or more times what they do that may be precarious also you know that's kind of thing that can change very quickly
0: Alrighty then boy, that's uh, a, a, a jam packed episode. Uh, Lincoln is absolutely uh, uh, knowledgeable uh, and then some on this topic. And uh, again, I, I, I suggest to you highly this book, Baseball Goes West, the Dodgers, the Giants and the shaping of the major leagues. It is uh, perhaps an unexpected sort of alternate take, I guess, of the westward movement of the Dodgers and the Giants back in 57 and 58. It is a, a, a tremendous read. It is well-researched, uh, excellently documented, and um, uh, we highly encourage you to check it out. Again, Baseball Goes West. It is published by the Kent State University Press, and you can find a, a link conveniently to that book, as well as uh, two of the other books that, uh, that I suggest you uh, check out from Lincoln as well. Both sort of related. One specifically in baseball, that's Will Big League Baseball Survive? Uh, That is uh, Lincoln's book uh, that is uh, under the imprint uh, of Temple University Press. And uh, we got into a little bit of uh, some of the thinking around that, too, and and perhaps another conversation for another episode, as well as uh, his current book, San Francisco Year Zero, Political Upheaval, Punk Rock and a Third Place Baseball Team. All right. So I wonder what that third place baseball team might be of course you wink wink nod nod probably already know that uh that is currently out and that is published by rutgers university press uh so check out all of those books uh and then some and we've got links conveniently to all of those books uh in our little uh episode uh, synopsis on our website just look up uh episode number 147 on good seats still yep that's our website good seats still And uh, not only are you going to find this episode with Lincoln Mitchell, but also all of our other 140 some odd episodes, depending on when you're listening. We probably built even more since then, Uh, but they're all there for you to uh, stream, to download, uh, to find the books and the movies and all the other forms of media. Uh, There's some commerce opportunities and shirts and buttons and memorabilia and all that kind of stuff. And we're we're continuing to kind of tinker with it and build more at it. But that's the place to go. Bookmark it early and come visit often, why don't you? Uh, And again, that's goodseatsstillavailable.com. Let's see, if uh, you want to send us some email, you can do that either directly from the site or uh, just directly by typing in this little address in your little uh, email browser there on your mobile device. It's hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Send us some email and uh, hopefully we'll uh, respond or uh, if we can help you out or if you like what you hear or you don't or whatever, let us know. You can also find all of our social media feeds. Uh, The links are conveniently there at the website, but also you can find those directly. Just punch these in at uh, at Twitter. You can find us at Good Seat Still. Uh, let's see on uh, Instagram. Of course, we're at good seats still available. And yes, for the, uh, the amount of time that we're going to stick around on Facebook and, you know, we, we waffle back and forth each and every week, whether we're going to stick around, but, uh, you'll find a page devoted to us there on Facebook, at least for the time being. And, uh, you can connect and, or follow us there as well. One last thing we, uh, want to say, uh, thank you as always, but this week, For the first time, independently, our good pal, Dr. Jerry Payne. Yes, he's striking out on his own, and uh, he continues to uh, put up with our madness. We appreciate and uh, can't believe he's doing so, but uh, hopefully you will continue to enjoy his fine editing stylings. And again, uh, Jerry, we uh, tip of the cap to you, and uh, we thank you for continuing to help us produce this show each and every week. All right, uh, until next time, we, uh, we bid you a fond adieu. And uh, we thank you, of course, for listening. Until next week, we, uh, we'll see you. Take care, and thanks for listening.
3: So I say D. I say D-O. D-O-D. D-O-D-G. D-O-D-G-E-R-S. Team, 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 team. Oh, I say O-M. O-M-A. O-M-A-L. O-M-A-L-L-E-Y, oh really? No O'Malley. Sandy Koufax, oh my Drysdale, Maury Wills, I love you so. And we defy, defy the J-I-N-J-I-N-T-J-I-N-T-S. Giants! Play ball! Orlando Cepeda is at bat with the bases jammed Orlando Cepeda With a wham bam he hit a grand slam in the very first inning, but it's only the beginning in the fight, like a fight, we get to one and away, then fairly hits into a double play. Here comes Big Frank Howard yesterday. Boy, what a swing! Strike three. Odem B, you. B-U-M, B-U-M-S, them bums, them bums, them dry bums. Oh, they may be bums, but they're my bums. Top of the fifth, say hey, Whirly Mays hits a three bagger down the right field line. But he's out trying to stretch it to a homer as Roseboro tags him on the bottom of the spine with a crack you can hear all the way back up to San Francisco. Open your hospital! Inning six, Maury Wills draws a walk in the coach's box Leo Rocher, Leo Rocher starts to wiggle and to twitch A signal? No, an itch Go Maury, go Maury, go, go, go Maury goes, the catcher throws right from the solar plexus At the bag, he beats the tag, that mighty little waif. And umpire Conlon cries, You're out! Out? Out? Down in the dugout, Alston glowers. Up in the booth, Vince Scully frowns. Out in the stands, O'Malley grins. Attendance, 50,000. And what does O'Malley do? Hodge! Bottom of the ninth. Four to nothing. Last chance. Push the button. Oh, we're pleading, begging on our knees. Come on, you Flatbush refugees. Maury wills it back. Hit it for me once. Stu Miller throws, Maury bunts. Cepeda runs to field the ball, and Hiller covers first. Haller runs to back up Hiller, Hiller crashes into Miller, Miller falls, drops the ball, Colin calls, safe! Yay, Maury! Gilliam up, Miller grunts, Miller throws, Gilliam Bunce. Cepeda runs to field of Hill the ball, and Hiller covers first. Haller runs to back up Hiller. Hiller crashes into Miller. Miller falls, drops the ball. Conlon calls. Safe! Yay! Conlon! Willie Davis gets a hit, and Tommy does the same. Here comes Mr. Howard with the chance to win the game. Hit it once! Big Frank Bunce? Cepeda runs to field the ball So does Hiller, so does Miller Miller hollers, Hiller Hiller hollers, Miller Holler hollers, Hiller Points to Miller with his fist And that's the Miller, Hiller, holler, hallelujah twist The Davis score, it's 4-4 four to four. How still running the bases From second to third, it's almost absurd Amazement on everyone's faces He's heading for home, he hasn't a chance The poor nut is gonna be dead But the ball hits him right in the seat of his pants And he scores that's using your head. So I say D, I say D-O, D-O-D-G-E-R-S. The team that's all heart, all heart and all thumbs, they're Los Angeles, you're Los Angeles, our Los Angeles. Do you think we'll really win the pennant? Bye. Zoom! No.